Welcome to Momentum Africa. I'm your host, Hashim Meki. Our show features African leaders that are shifting the paradigms in their fields. We explore themes of leadership, economic development, current challenges, and how these leaders are providing innovative solutions to be catalysts of change in their communities. Here at Momentum Africa, we understand that there are no panacea to all problems. And this is why we examine the following topics. The influence of past and current leaders, economic development, philanthropy, culture, and health within the continent of Africa. In this episode, I spoke with Ms. Fatimata Berry of the Berry Law Center. Ms. Berry is a Sierra Leonean American attorney, politician, and advocate for social and economic issues for African immigrants and minority groups in the suburban area of Washington, D.C. She immigrated to the U.S. at age 11 from Sierra Leone and grew up in Florida, where she received her Bachelor of Science in Psychology from the Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University and her J.D. from the University of Florida, Levin's College of Law. For the past 16 years, Fatimata has lived in White Oak, Maryland. She has dedicated more than 20 years of her life to the service of her community. She is a former chair and current executive member of the African Affairs Advisory Group for Montgomery County, Maryland. As a co-chair of the Cultural Working Group in the African Affairs Advisory Group, she is a member of the Pan-African Festival Planning Committee, which produces Pan-A Fest every September to celebrate Montgomery County's African Heritage Month. Currently, she works at the Montgomery County Council of Maryland. In 2018, she became the first African woman to run for a state delegate seat in Maryland and earned almost 9% of the votes with over 4,000 votes. Let's begin. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, Ms. Uh, Fatimata, can you uh, please share with us your story? How did you uh, get you? Uh, your start? Um, well, um, I'm not, it's it, my start in community or career. So if we say career, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I came here, as you say, I was 11 years old. So um, from Sierra Leone, my parents um, are here. So I'm all my siblings now. <clears throat> so I grew up in this country. And I grew up in such a way that I was privileged to have the experience of an African child um, and a black um, person, a black child, and also have the experience of living and going to school with um, in white communities. So I've I've had this um, experience that I that I say is. Uh, full experience and has made me who I am today. So my start as an attorney didn't really happen until later. So a lot of people would say they've always known they wanted to be an attorney or whatever career it is they have. That was not me. So I started off going to school, taking classes because, you know, back then, I was one of the quote unquote um, <laughs> uh, dreamers that they call dreamers today, right? So I was cons- I would have been considered a dreamer, somebody who is sort of here in a limbo, grew up here only in America, but not quite fully American. So I started <clears throat> attending classes after high school because I did high school here. Um, but could not really go too far because I didn't have my papers. And during that process, I was interested in doing business, did not like it. So I decided, okay, you know, I love um, psychological um, discussions. So I decided to do psychology. It was, a, it was sort of a, uh, a fluke that I ended up going to law school because I was working in a residential program for, for the youth and I worked with, with boys, young, young boys, young men. And 
the experience there, the way the students, uh, the children were, were treated did not sit well with me. And I remember speaking to my father and telling him, um, I want to be an attorney to represent these kids because it seems like they have no rights the way they're treated. And it just did not sit well with me. So that was my starting discussion of going to law school and ended up going to law school, started off um, doing exclusively special education law to represent children with special needs. And as I got more involved with community engagement, realized the needs within the immigrant community as far as immigration is concerned. So I started doing a lot of um, workshops, providing those kind of services, um, which were all free, then started venturing into making it as a living also and um, started charging, of course, to do the work. So that's basically a short version of how I started, at least um, being an attorney and being a community member, community organizer, because I saw the need. And it's one of those things where my parents had a revolving door. So I'm sure many people have the same stories. My parents had a revolving door where they always had people coming and staying with us. Never really had my own room per se, um, because there's always somebody there. So you grew up in that environment of giving and knowing that there are others who would need. And that's how I ended up where I did. That's how I started. Right. Uh, so what decisions did you make along your journey that uh, guided you towards uh, success? I, I was taught that um, you should push yourself to succeed, but don't forget that there are many people out here who do not have the opportunities and the privilege that you have. So for me, some of the decisions I've made have been community focused. They have been a lot focused on how what I do affects those around me, the public, the people, my family. So some of the decisions I've made have been focusing on my goals, focusing on my passion, and focusing on how what I do can affect others in a positive way. And moving forward with those goals and working hard, working very hard to attain those goals and making choices that, um, I made a choice to move here to DC area from Florida. It was, an, it was just a decision that I made. I knew this was where I needed to be. And after law school, packed up my bags, hitched up my car behind my, my truck with all my things in it and drove. Drove to Georgia, met up with my father. He drove me the rest of the way here from Georgia. And here I am. And I think that was probably one of the best decisions I ever made was to move up here from Florida. I love Florida, grew up in Florida. I will always be an FLA girl. But I think coming up here has been a really great decision. I've met amazing people. I've done amazing things. And we've, we've made amazing impact within the community. I'm very glad you made that decision and uh, uh, that we were able to uh, meet. So what made you make the decision to move here? But also, uh, why? Why did you uh, go to uh, law school? There must have been something that spoke to you. Um, well, like I said a little earlier, I went to law school mainly because of what I thought was mistreatment of children. So back then, um, there weren't that many laws and policies that protect children. And working in residential, I saw that the children will, will be shackled, um, literally wrists to feet, to ankles. Um, the way they were treated did not sit well. And I always felt the urge to protect them, but I didn't really have the power to, because again, I was a psych major, I had my bachelor's in psychology, considered going ahead and getting my master's and PhD until I started working in the residential programming and saw how the, these young people were being treated by the legal system. And that is what propelled me into going to law school, honestly. It wasn't anything else. Um, and that was what got me started in law. 
And to move up here, I came here a lot for conferences during law school. And I was very attracted to the diversity that I found up in DC. My, my real purpose for moving up here, <laughs> my real thought rather was that I wanted to live in the city. I wanted to live in DC because I've never actually lived in, in the city in that, in that form. And ended up, of course, living out in Silver Spring because it was so much cheaper than it was living in DC, especially as a new law school grad. And I love the diversity. I love seeing the different people, hearing the different languages, the different accents, and interacting with different people from all parts of the world. This was the first place in DC that I heard a, um, a Scottish brog besides the television. And it was just fascinating. Like I stood there and just watched the man and I couldn't help but say something to him and he was so friendly. But that's why I moved up here. And I saw the chance, the opportunity to really make a difference because this is the heart of the nation. This is where everything happens. And so that's why I moved up here. So you made the decision to move to uh, the suburban Silver Spring area. And um, uh, having gone through this journey, there must have been some um, uh, obstacles that uh, came your way. And if there were any, what lessons were you able to learn from them? Um, I mean, I think, I think the obstacles are probably shared by many who are just like myself. Being um, an African immigrant, a woman, a Black person, those obstacles I don't think change too much. Um, I had them as a kid and they remained. And there's a little difference in, in opportunities that you receive as someone of color, as a black person. And then you add the elements of being an immigrant and then you add the elements of being a woman. So those obstacles have always been there and they still exist. The, the question is whether you allow the obstacles to stand in your way or bulldoze your way through them or jump over them or walk around them. It depends on the individual. Um, but the obstacles were knowing that you are qualified for positions, but yet when you meet with people, the results are not favorable. But you know you know your stuff. You know that in any other circumstance, you could have been the person chosen. And knowing that, you know, can be disappointing and sometimes heartbreaking, I suppose. But the question is whether you take that disappointment and turn it into something else. And that is what I did. There were obstacles, but you overcome the obstacles. And I, I worked for nice, um, successful boutique law firms, which taught me a lot. And then um, after several years, I went out on my own and started my own practice. This is a good segue to ask you, well, what would you uh, say would be some of the advice that you uh, provide uh, African women or African men wanting to uh, pursue the same uh, path that you have uh, followed? Um, well, I don't know if I would advise. I always say follow your own path. Right. So be true to yourself. Be honest with yourself. Know who you are. Sometimes, you know, people people say know who you have around you, which is very true. But you cannot really identify the people around you. In a way that reflects you, if you are not true to yourself, if you don't know yourself and you don't know what goals and objectives you want to attain in your life. So number one is to know yourself and know what goals you want. Number two is to fight for those goals and work hard, but smart. So I know there's a saying that, that they say, um, don't work hard, work smart. But I say work hard and smart because the hard work you put in gleans good results majority of the time. Not all the time, obviously, but majority of the time. Be very patient. Be very patient with yourself. Be very patient with what you're doing. Be very patient with those around you. 
because nothing comes easy and nothing comes tomorrow or right now. It has to be nurtured. It, you have to invest in whatever it is and put in the time, the energy, the sweat to make it happen. That's how we all got where we got. That's how we, we were all able to reach these milestones that we, that we have reached. And once that happens, you can get to your goal. And the goals are never finished. So, you know, until, until I'm dead and buried, you haven't, I haven't really attained my goals. There are goals that you set incrementally and get to those incremental goals. But always push yourself to be better and do better. And hold people close that are good to you. Because that's the key. I very much like the uh, spirit and the way you said it, that um, we have to work hard, plus being smart, and uh, don't expect less, but the best. So this is a really great uh, way to uh, pursue uh, a path in life. So as a leader in your field, you must have been, uh, you must owe some of your success. I think you alluded to it earlier that your parents uh, had an evolving uh, door. So what other um, factors or people in your life that have contributed to your success, would you say? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, like I said earlier, it may be cliched, but my parents were and are the backbone of who I am, whether career-wise or community or personal life. And my siblings, um, there's six of us. And the, the blessing that I have is that we, we have that sort of bond that, that is real, that works, that you know, no matter where you are, you have people who can hold you up, they will catch you and they'll hold you up. And I think that has been probably the most, not the, not probably, that has been the most defining, um, defining moment or defining thing in my life that has been able to get me to where I am today. Because I take chances, I take steps, knowing who I am as, not just as Fatmata, but as the child of these two amazing people, Abdullah and Elizabeth Barry, and as the sibling of these other five amazing people. And know that if I fall and if I trip and fall, they're always going to be there to catch me and lift me up. So it makes you feel comfortable and safe. And so you can do things and you can say things because no matter what, they will be there for you. And that has been the most amazing thing. But I think also it's those who came before um, as an African immigrant coming into this country and trying to build a life, every single one of us know, you know, the struggles that that, that comes with. You, we, we, we know the, the changes that we have to go through, the adaptation that we have to go through. But I think we also have to keep in mind that we would not have even had the opportunity to learn to adapt if not, but for those who already fought the big fight for us here. Right. People like John Lewis, people like Elijah Cummings, people like uh, um, um, Shirley Chisholm, those people who fought the good fight, those people who made it OK for somebody who looks like me to be in the position that I'm in. And I will forever be grateful to those people for opening the door and making it OK that a black child, a black woman can be where I am, can say what I want to say, do what I want to do and feel comfortable and safe. So that, those, those are for me what I attributed to. And of course, you know, you have all your support, your friends, your colleagues. I have some special people in my life here in this area who are always there for me, um, who I feel safe with. Um, you have now, you know, you have special people in your life who protect you and will stand strong by you. And that helps. 
that makes things a lot easier and helps you move forward. This is great uh, that we uh, we have had all this family, community, and uh, civil rights icons and people who've come uh, before you and before us to uh, pave the way for for success. So with that, I would also uh, want to know more about what are the uh, what advice do you have for developing the next generation of African leaders? Um, mm. I think this. Uh, is related to the earlier question, but more broadly, as a successful leader in your field, uh, and generally speaking, so how can we replicate this uh, um, formation ancestors and people who came uh, before us? How do we get there from this generation and the next one? Um, I think part of it is also on us, for those of us who came before to teach them, about their history if they don't know it, because that helps. So I believe that knowing your history and knowing where you come from and what others have sacrificed for you makes a difference in decisions that you make and how you move forward. Um, I just saw a um, something on TV this morning on, new, on the news and uh, a doctor was asked, what should we do now as the weather is getting colder during this pandemic? Um, how can we protect ourselves? And he said, we need to adopt the village mentality. And it struck me because I think that's what we have had. That's what we've been missing lately, the village mentality, the helping and lifting of each other up and making sure that we are all um, protected, not just worried about whether I'm protected, but everyone is protected. And the advice I would give this new, the upcoming generation on how to progress here. And I'll be honest, sometimes I feel like they are way ahead of us <laughs> in so many things because they see what is already there. They, they, they have the technology, they have the globalization of being exposed to so, so much more than we did when we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have the internet, and we didn't have all these ways of communicating globally. Now they do. And they're inventive. They, they come up with ways to get things done. But some of the advice I would give is that don't forget who you are, where you come from. Don't forget to have around you people who can lift you up, people who can open doors for you, people who can make sure that you have a smoother transition. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having people around you who can help your career. You should have your friends and your loved ones close, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with having people around you who can help your career, nothing. Always follow up, always follow up. You meet someone, follow up. We were taught, you get a business card, flip the card, write the person's, um, where you met them, the date, and something that would remind you of who they are. Always follow up, even if it's a quick email. It was great meeting you yesterday, so on and so forth. And you move on, but always follow up. And that's key to having any kind of success. And people also know when you're being honest and real. When you're fake, people will pick it up. And it will. you may think you're being successful, but at some point, things come crashing down. So be honest, be true, um, and work hard. Again, be patient and work hard, but smart. So be, be real and always follow up. I can do that too. Um, 
Now you are the current executive member of the African Affairs of Montgomery County, and you have served in multiple community groups and organizations. Uh, what drives you to fight for this social uh, and economic improvement uh, in, in the community? The desire to see equity. Deep desire to see equity. Because we are all human and we are all made in the image of God and we are all supposed to be created equal. Equity. It's not there. We have not arrived. There's so much work to be done. So much. And no one person can do it. But each person can bring their own that can make a huge difference. It's not a one person job, but neither is it that I don't matter or my voice doesn't count because it does. It's equity. It's a desire to have equity. It's the desire to build a community. It's the desire to build a nation. It's the desire to build strength in family and loved ones. That's what pushes me. And it's, it's been there. It's always been there. And I don't envision it going anywhere. Um, it's a passion that I've had for a long time. And being in this community has made it even stronger because I see the possibilities of what can happen. There's so much talent. There's so much talent here. It's immeasurable. The idea that people with so much talent and, and, um, and abilities cannot progress or um, be treated as equals just doesn't make any sense. And that's, that's my drive. Because unfortunately, even though within the African immigrant community, statistically, they say we are the most educated and we become the most educated, we are also underemployed. Meaning you may have a job, but it's not related to your um, academic capability or, um, or credential. So that says a lot. You have people driving taxi cabs who are um, physicians, professors, so on and so forth. I'm not saying it's only in the African immigrant community, but this is what we're talking about, right? And so because of that, those things push me to work even harder to ensure that is some form of equity as much as possible. So you're also, uh, beside that, you're also a passionate advocate for educational rights for children and uh, especially those who with special needs in the D.C. area among the, uh, the community members. So what, what have made you... Uh, uh, passionate uh, and, and became involved in that uh, area? Um, it was from 1996 or seven, I think seven ninety seven when I started working in a residential program in Florida. Um, a little town named Riverview, <laughs> Florida. And worked with youth with emotional um, concerns. Some had major behavior problems. Some, for some, that was a step-down facility from um, detention. And for some, it was purely psychological help and behavior help. And that, that propelled me into, I worked there for many years before and during law school. And it opened my eyes to the needs of so many um, special, special needs children and youth because the talent they have is there. All they need is the proper education. All they need is the proper opportunity, the proper services, and they can excel. And during my work as a special education attorney and advocate, I saw it. I had several, many hundreds of children who otherwise, who people have sort of almost given up on. And so they will have them go through school with and come out with a certificate of completion, basically, which doesn't really give you anything. So one of my major 
things was to get these students to have diplomas, high school diplomas, get them in a special needs school that can provide them with the services they need so they can learn like every other quote unquote regular ed child. And at the end of the day, have something to show for it and move forward. And there were many who went to, um, who finished high school, went to college and living productive lives because they, they can, they have the ability. And that's what made me get into special education advocacy and special education law. That was my desire. I went to law school to represent children. And I did that for many years. I'm not as in depth in it as I, as I used to be. I've gotten so involved in community organizing and making change on the ground, but that is a passion of mine and it will always be a passion of mine, providing help for children in need or specialist children. As uh, an immigration attorney, politician or advocate for social causes in the African community in Maryland. Can you also share with us what challenges and opportunities that exist for Africans in, your, in, in, in the state of Maryland so we can all benefit from uh, your depth and expertise? Um, I don't know if I can really tell you the challenges um, and opportunities in the whole state of Maryland. I can tell you that at least in this um, region, that I am in, um, the challenges are there because the African immigrant voice is not yet as strong as other immigrant voices. So those are the challenges. It's so much better than when I first came here. We're building up. We are, at least in um, Montgomery County, we are the second fastest growing immigrant community in the county. And that makes a difference. That makes a lot of difference, especially if you utilize that. And I think one of the challenges we have is not realizing our own power, not realizing our own strength, and not realizing that we can actually make changes happen if we put our minds to it. And the opportunities are there. We have a um, couple of African elected officials in, within the Maryland Democratic Party. I mean, um, I'm sorry, the Montgomery County Democratic Party. We have our first um, African elected county council in Montgomery County. Um, we have the, 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 the child of a um, African in, at the state level. And you know, so we have an African at a state level. We have somebody here in the county. So the opportunities, and there are many of us who are in the medical field. There are many of us who are getting more involved in grassroots organizing and stepping out of our little bubble. So I think one of the challenges is that we tend to stay within ourselves, but the opportunity is there to, to step outside and also interact with others and work with others because that's how you build. You can, you, you, you spend time building yourself and get yourself to, um, to, to the strength that you need and then bring in your allies. So the opportunity is there to build ourselves and then bring in our allies. So I think that's where, that's, where I, that's what I can see. You know, our challenges are always what? Language, right? Because the continent is um, how many countries? Over 50 countries, 52 countries? F 54. Four, see, we just keep growing. <laughs> and, and within each country, you have several tribes. Even within my own small Sierra Leone, we have like, there's 7 million people in, the, in that country, 7 or 8 million people. And within that 7 or 8 million people, you have at least, 13, 14 different languages spoken within that small country, technically. So when we come out here, one of the barriers we have is that we are so, we're not monolithic. We are diverse. People don't realize it, but we are diverse. We may all be black majority, but we are still diverse because our languages are not all the same. And the challenge we have is figuring out a way to bypass that language differential 
and come together in spite of it and focus on things that are in need for the community as a whole. And be cognizant of the fact that when you leave your country or continent and you come into a different environment, you are a stranger. And so when you have others who have done the same, pull them close, hold them close, and then learn from those who you met here. Learn from them. Appreciate what they've accomplished before you came. Appreciate what they sacrificed to make it easier for you to even make it here, much less um, progress. And that would help us a lot. That would help move us further. Okay. So um, within this diversity of people of African descent living in the United States, so as a leader, how would you say that you would uh, execute strategic plans to advance whatever goals the community agrees on so that they could become reality? Hmm. See, that's, um, that's a tough question. <laughs> Because, again, we are so different. And I believe in having discourse. I believe in people coming together and having a complete um, conversation in determining steps forward. But I think one of the first things we have to do that I would propose if I had the opportunity um, is to sort of call, not necessarily a conference, but maybe a mini conference of Africans in the diaspora to sort of pinpoint some issues that people feel are affecting the communities. And I'm sure many will be similar, but it will help us sort of come together and see where each group is coming from and where they stand, either socially, economically, um, health, politically, you name it. And maybe that can help us sort of create a system where we can do more um, outreach and then put it in a regional way, right? So we have different regions within um, the United States and we can create these regional subsections of this coming together of African diaspora in America. So just a basic, right off the top of my head, it's one of those things where I'll probably have to sit down and really think about how to make it, how to do the strategical plan that you're talking about. But off the top of my head, initially, I think that would be um, a good way to start. I appreciate that. Um, and we can definitely talk more on that uh, in the future. Uh, regarding uh, work and family, life how do you balance that given your um, very uh, uh dynamic activism and 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 work with the community well i think i'm i'm uh i have no children <laughs> so um i'm very different in than many other people you see out there i have no kids so and i think that is the the most debilitating or the hardest part for many of many people who are active within the community. I have myself, now I have a, a partner, um, but you know, he's not a child, he's self-sufficient. <laughs> so, and um, he's pretty supportive in the things I'm doing. But yeah, it's not having kids. I think that's the major difference and how I'm able to, I guess people want to say juggle, um, juggling, work and community, you know, um, the family, which is my parents and my siblings, they're always there. And I try to talk to them as much as possible. And in today's world, it's pretty easy to do, right? Yes. As we about to conclude this uh, conversation, what questions and thoughts, obviously, are you might have a lot in your mind these days about the state of affairs during this uh, pandemic, particularly here uh, in the USA, but also in Africa and the world? Hmm. 
quite a number of questions, but my thoughts are our society, I'll start from here in the U.S. since this is where I live and I've lived for the majority of my life. Right now, we are in a place where change, drastic change is needed because as as a country, as a nation, we are on the cusp of democratic annihilation with a small d. And that may sound hyperbolic, but it's really not. We are in a situation where some of us are almost blind to what is really happening, either on purpose or life is just so hard that we just do not have time to pay attention to that because I have to feed my children. I have to work these two, three jobs. I have to do this overnight shift. I have to take care of my sick parents. I have to send money home. So there are all these other things happening. And so for those of us who are in this political bubble and this community bubble, we see everything and we know everything that's happening. And we, 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 we pull our hair out trying to figure out why are people not seeing what we're seeing? And I think to a certain extent, because we are not at this particular moment experiencing what people are experiencing, we are lost in our own world of trying to fix what we have right now, which is a country that is being led down the proverbial rabbit hole and it's a dark hole. And I may sound like if the world is coming to an end and I don't like saying that, but a friend of mine <laughs> put up, um, I, I said something like that on a, on a live event I did a couple of days ago and, a, and, and I made that comment and a friend of mine responded to say, but really it could be that because people's health is in, is in jeopardy, economic stability is in jeopardy, mental health stability is in jeopardy, um, and the soul, I hate to say it because it sounds like I'm being a, 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 a mouthpiece for a candidate, but this really the soul of this nation is in danger. And you know what they always say, if America has a, what is it? If America sneezes, the whole world gets a cold. It's not a joke. It's real. So for all of us who may think I can just pack up my bags and go back to Africa, or I can just pack up my bags and go somewhere else. Stop and think about the effect and the reach that this country has globally. It's not a small thing. Um, And the danger is that the enemies of this country will see a weakness that they can exploit. And I'm not, and I'm not talking about people who just, oh, I don't like America. I'm talking about real people, people who can do real damage to this nation. And as a result, maybe impact other nations. And I think we have to wake up and realize that the changes in immigration, so I'm an immigration attorney, so I know the changes, right? And some people know it. Certain African countries have been targeted by this administration. And this is the one of some of the worst times, right? During this pandemic, where people are trying to help their, their family members have a better living. Right now, most recently, my own country, Australia, now also has a ban on immigration. Whether you're visiting or not, emigrating, there's a ban. Nigeria already has theirs. Several other African nations have, um, have bans. And mind you, Africans are only 4%, only 4% of the immigrant population in this country, of, an, of nations of 54 countries, right? And yet still, we are targeted in so much immigration bans and reduction. So that should, that should send a message to all of us who are African and African immigrants in this country 
that the changes that need to happen mean that we need to galvanize ourselves to come out and vote because that's the only way we can make any changes. And once we vote and we vote um, Biden in, then at that stage, we hold that administration accountable and we make sure we stay strong and vocal and active to make actual change happen and stay. So as far as my thought during this pandemic, so many black people are losing their lives and we don't, dis we don't disaggregate the data, but we know that a lot of frontline workers are African immigrants. A lot of the nurses are African immigrants. I know that I saw a study that said, I think it's um, five, five out of seven nurses or something to that effect are African in the country, in, in, this, um, in this country. And that is with a population of 4% African immigrants in this country. But in the medical field, in nurse, as far as nurses are concerned, that's a very high number. That tells you who's more exposed right now when it comes to health. So to put that in perspective, we need people, we need someone who is focused on providing services for those who are on the front lines, providing services for those who are economically in need and providing services for those who need to ensure the safety and protection of their families overseas. And that means making changes to our immigration, to the healthcare programming that we have here in this country and access. So access for us is, can be limited or is limited because of who we are and not having the right tools. But I will say that as Africans in this pandemic, as black people in this pandemic, we have a lot more to lose than our counterparts. We have a whole lot more to lose if we leave things as they are. So my thought right now is organize, galvanize, vote. If you can vote, um, support. If you can't support financially, make phone calls, encourage at least 10 people that you know to vote who can vote. And that's how we make a difference. So going back to the... Uh to the immigrant, immigrant, immigrants and their percentages. So what are the, um, I know Africans, uh, 4%. So what are the other groups that are, um, I mean, the other immigrants that make up the immigration system in this country as far as different percentages? Oh, hmm. I don't know all the percentages off the top of my head, but I can tell you that, of course, Europeans uh, make up a large percentage and so do Asians and Latinos. Latinos, Latinas are probably the, I, I believe they are the fastest growing immigrant population in this country, um, the largest, um, as far as, you know, they're, they're a very huge number. They're a very huge number. Asians are growing fast, but as far as numbers are concerned, I don't know off the top of my head right now that I can give you the exact numbers for each, um, each group. Um, but I do know that we are probably one of the lowest as far as people who are immigrating into this country. As an attorney and politically, the talk right now is mostly about RBG. So what's the dialogue in your field? Particularly as an immigration lawyer, I mean, is hmm. that a... Uh, the uh, area to talk about? Um, well, I think a lot of the discussions around um, RBG's um, passing has been more along the lines of how how this would, how this changes the, the our court system because we we have a lot of conservative judges, lifetime judges who have already been appointed by this administration um, on the lower federal courts. So with combination to that and RBG um, passing and 
the possibility or not possibility, the certainty that Trump will have another Supreme Court justice appointed who is going to be very conservative. It's, it can be concerning. It's very, very concerning because all the legislation or all the litigations that attorneys have had in the past to make changes are, the fear is that all those will be rolled back 50 years or more. And if they are, it's almost like starting from all over again. So civil rights attorneys are going to be very busy. <laughs> They're going to be very, very, very busy because people's civil rights are going to be tested a lot, a lot. And so that's part of the, the discourse, part of what, um, what I think for those of us who are attorneys, I've been thinking a lot about what's gonna happen? Is the court gonna be friendly to your issues? Or are we now in a, in a, in a space where we sort of have to make arguments that we've made in the past already to try to fix things? Certainly. Um, so where would people uh, find you if uh, someone is trying to contact you um, uh, for our audience? Okay, so um, my law practice is the Barry Law Center, and I'm out in Silver Spring. The website is www.barrylawcenter.com. The number is 240-324-8222. Um, you can go on my website. I'm also on Facebook, the Barry, um, Barry Law Center. And um, message me if you have questions. Um, um, I do a lot of, I like giving information, making sure people are aware of what's happening. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's how people can contact me if they desire to. Thank you for uh, this, uh, sharing the information. And uh, I've really enjoyed uh, having this discussion with you and uh, I've certainly learned a lot. So thank you so much uh, for coming. Uh, on Momentum Africa podcast and sharing with us your uh, uh, expertise and uh, leadership uh, uh, tips. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was really an honor and congratulations. I'm so happy for you for this podcast and I'm sure it's going to be a great success because you, you have the right mindset. Thank you for trying to uplift the community and showing the best of us. And it's really great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you.